2: for woodworkers by woodworkers now here are three guys who are actually under the illusion that woodworking is cool mark matt and Shannon. all right
1: howdy y'all it's wood talk 126 for march 27th 2013 on today's show we're blasting through some emails with our 20 question quick fire challenge
3: nice huh Uh, oh wow
1: (laughs) sound effects and everything uh goodness i don't live
3: in detroit anymore i'd be like ducking for cover again (laughs) look out
1: (laughs) Uh, Topics tonight are going to range from grain direction to wood selection to dust collection to tool buying circumspection. Before we get to that, Matt, how about you, uh... No, why do I always do that? Let's do the sponsor thing. Today's show is supported by Festool, helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at festoolusa.com. And by Bell Forest Products, providing over 100 species of figured and exotic wood to woodworkers around the globe. From stock sizes and individual boards to bulk lumber for larger projects, you're sure to find exactly what you need. Use coupon code WOODTALK at bellforestproducts.com to save 10% on your next order.
3: Offer good until April 10th, 2013. Hey folks, you have a comment, a question, or a topic suggestion because hopefully after today's episode, we'll have completely cleared out all of our questions and we'll be needing to (laughs) refill that area. You have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is WoodTalkOnline call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com, or you can leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, along with all that contact information, you're going to find that over at woodtalkshow.com. And with that out of the way, man, we need to just jump right in here. We've got a whole bunch of questions. Yeah.
0: Nice.
1: What's that on your phone? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> it's my shotgun app oh sweet sweet everybody's yeah. gonna have one of those yeah does anybody else feel like we're starting an episode of family feud here with that intro music <laughs> a little bit yeah it does sound I like family Feud. A little bit. <laughs> that's awesome good call it's the Vanderlist. <laughs>
3: as long as the host doesn't try to kiss me i was we're just gonna okay. say
1: i'm gonna try to kiss you if you don't mind um, yeah, so quick fire, 20 questions today. We, we literally have 20 questions to answer and these come from emails that date back for probably the last couple of months and we decided we've tried so many times to do like, oh, it's an all email episode and we'd knock maybe five or six of, of them out. It's not going to do it. We really need to get through these and try to answer them as, uh, as quick but thoroughly as possible without dwelling on it too much. So let's get into it. Uh, let me hit this one more time
3: nice it's, it's therapeutic <laughs> it is. I feel like I should be pushing off some blocks right now <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> all right here we go I'll start with the first one this is a question from Chris he says I have a thickness planner I think he meant planer." Uh, these also were, were edited and retyped by by Matt at one point and then me at another point. So we could have made the situation worse. Oh,
3: definitely. made this <laughs> <It's> worse.
1: <laughs> All right. It says, I have a thickness planer and a shaper that I use to joint edges. Is it worth investing in a jointer to clean up the faces of the boards as well? I would say absolutely yes because you're not really going to be able to clean the faces on those other tools. Uh, the thickness planer, Yes, you can clean up a face and you could skip plane if the board is relatively flat to begin with, but you're not going to be able to establish a true perfect flat edge like you can on the jointer. I will say a little bit of a caveat to that is if you've got one of those little sled devices uh, where you actually put... The board on a flat sled and you use shims and whatnot to hold it in place you can get decent results that way but i don't i don't like that for a long-term solution so i really would recommend eventually looking into a jointer and until then you can get by with using some of those tricks that give you a nice flat uh, flat face with the planer but you need to build a a jig or two to to make
3: it happen sweet sounds like very good advice thanks matt Hey, no problem. <laughs> all right. Well, let me just jump into the next one here. Unless, anybody else have anything to say about that one? I think that's great advice.
1: Nope. I think we'll try to limit our uh, answers unless someone has anything major that they need to throw in.
3: Okay. Who's major? No, I'm just uh, kidding. Anyways. All right. So this next question, that one really bad. That was bad. Uh, I this comes from Jeffrey, time. and Jeffrey's asking, I know pistol-style clamps don't have the most clamping pressure, so I mainly use them as a third hand. But I wondered if you guys had some opinions on which ones were better or worse than the others, or are they all pretty much the same? Well, Jeffrey, my my experience so far is I have tried uh, the Irwin, the, the blue handled ones. Let's mm-hmm. uh, see, uh, Highland Woodworking makes their own. I haven't tried those ones yet, uh, but I have tried uh, Bora makes some. And let's see. Uh, pretty much, it seems like every I think Jorgensen or somebody makes some too. There's all sorts of various manufacturers that have them in there. Uh, the ones I've tried so far, which basically are the the Bora and the Irwin, they've been they've been really decent. They do exactly what I want to. In fact, sometimes uh, depending on the size of the pad, the the face itself is where I notice that. That's where I tend to get kind of tripped up a little bit. So for me, my experience so far has been they all pretty much work exactly the same. With that said, though, there are some cheapies which really, if it's a no-name brand, uh, I'm not going to name particular stores, Harbor Freight, if you buy things (laughs) from there, you'll often find that once you start clamping these, these are the ones that are most notorious for simply sliding away. You can Mm -hmm. grip it, it's super tight, but it's almost like the second you let go of that handle... It just kind of pops away from it. So I've never had any luck with those particular ones. What you do uh, so. in that
0: situation, Matt, is you take a good clamp and you clamp it across the cheapo clamp. Perfect. And then you clamp the cheap clamp. That's perfect because my other It adds a little extra luck. pressure on the bar so the cheap clamp holds it. I like that idea. It I was going to so say,
3: efficient. just get a- <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I need to buy some more clamps for my clamps. <laughs> <laughs> these clamps ain't working. Just use these that's, other ones. That's on a top. cry for help right there. Definitely. Exactly. Uh, I like that.
1: Um, I actually use the same ones, Matt. I've got the Irwin Irwin Quick Grips, but not the, they have like two of them, right? Don't they have the cheaper line and then they have the Quick Grip? I don't know if it's like the Quick Grip 2 or something like that. They're clearly much more heavy duty looking.
3: Um, right yeah yeah cause it, like really the thing is like if you look at the face of them those are the when you know it's like a, a more heavy duty one because like the bora mm-hmm. ones i have the actual pad itself is like a really th- they remind me of like doc martin's soles mm-hmm. the, the, the boots they're like really really thick looks like you put a nail through it and it'd be perfectly fine and i noticed with those they really really grab on and hold uh, you know the, the pressure seems to stay there but yeah the, the other ones where it's just that little thin pad mm, not so much cool i must have the the version one of those i just picked
0: them up at home depot like five years ago and frankly i've never really needed anything else they you know for that purpose that is so yeah i think they kind of all work the same they're not meant to apply a thousand pounds of pressure so use them where appropriate there you go yeah cool uh i'll jump into this one let's see uh this is from larry
2: he says i'm starting on a dinner table to give us a Uh,
0: where'd you guys go?
1: Hello.
2: Are you, I'm
0: surprised that it's taken this long to get this question.
1: Um, we, we actually is, completely missed anything you said. You yeah, were gone for like five seconds. Oh no. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Try again. I don't know what that was about. Okay. Well, um, do over. <laughs> this question comes from Larry. Uh, he says, I'm starting on a dinner table to give as a gift. I've read a lot of online articles saying to swap grain pattern on the ingrain of the top but I've read equal articles saying it doesn't matter, which is going to give me the best results. I'm using Brazilian cherry. Thanks, Shannon. You're welcome, Larry. For the top and curly maple base, Uh, Mm. let's see. Will pocket screws be sufficient around the aprons or will using cleats be my best bet? What type of finish is best for dining table as far as giving a good moisture barrier, food safe, Mm -hmm. and of course, a nice shine? First of all, Larry, that's like three questions in one. So you will be getting a bill for this. Um yeah. I'm I'm frankly shocked that we have not gotten this question about alternating ingrain before. It seems like one of those things has been bounced around the woodworking world since like Prohibition. We <laughs> may
1: have talked about it after 126 episodes, but you know, I have no idea. Yeah, <laughs> go back and listen to all of them, Larry. I'm sure it's let us there, know so. if you find it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um personally, I don't think it matters. I think I'm looking for the match on the face, like what I'm actually gonna see um on the top of the table. And I'm not worrying whether or not I'm alternating the, the grain. The, the idea is, is that if you alternate the grain, then you get uh, a tabletop that won't go as out of flat. You kind of get a, an, an undulating pattern, whereas if you put them all in the same direction, you'll get one giant potato chip. And has anybody ever seen that in either case? seeing where it's done that. I mean, no, I guess in theory it should. Isn't this the type of
1: thing where we're looking at something that was done in the past when wood was not necessarily
0: treated the way it is today and, and things were a little bit more I, unpredictable? I don't even know if that's the case because I've looked at a lot of antiques and it's gone for the grain match on the face. And yeah. you see one that is alternate, but then like two boards are in the same direction and then there's another one. And it looks to me like the woodworker was trying to go for a good grain match now there's a lot of people that will tell you in the 18th century they didn't care about green about wood movement and they just you know drove a peg through the top to hold it to the apron yeah so i think
3: the only time i've ever seen it is in the uh, artist illustrations of what could happen if you did this
0: right right and on the new yankee workshop yes um so i don't want to say that it's wrong it just seems to me the the higher priority should be to get a pleasing appearance to the top and if it so happens that you alternate the grain doing that, then maybe you'll be better off. But eh, it's not that big of a deal. As far as holding it to the apron, um, you know, I think pocket screws is just fine. I know many a dining table has been done that way. My personal preference is to use cleats because I think it gives you a little bit more um, room for movement. Uh, Pocket screws will certainly deform and move as a tabletop moves. But with the dining table, you're talking about a wider surface here. So being able to use a little cleat um, that has some movement built into it based around the depth of the, the groove that the cleat fits into seems to me just to be a better solution in the long run. Mm. Um, and then for the hat trick here, good moisture barrier, food safe, and of course a nice shine. Well, first of all, once any finish has fully cured, it is food safe. So we can eliminate that from the equation. Good moisture barrier and, of course, durability on a dining room table. You really can't beat something like polyurethane, Um, and it's going to give you a nice shine if you go with a gloss. No, you know nothing added. Polyurethane. What do you guys think?
1: Uh, I I agree with everything, and I think he should also consider maybe going for a wiping formula. Minwax has a. Pretty decent wiping poly, and that'll be a little bit easier on the application end of things, uh, especially for a surface that large. If you're not quite comfortable using a brush, uh, you could just go ahead and wipe it on, and the results should be really, really good. Yeah, good absolutely.
0: Polyurethane yeah, right out of the can is a nightmare.
1: It can be, yeah. that's for right, sure. Right, Matt?
0: Yeah, just slightly. <laughs>
1: it's it a little lumpy <laughs> when you're mad. Yeah. All right, so the next one is from Bob. He says, you guys ever use a dado insert with a hump to get a dead flat dado? I really don't know what he's talking about.
3: Yeah, I I know when this one came in, he had mentioned that there was uh, uh, apparently an old magazine article, Mm -hmm. which makes me wonder if maybe the editor was brand new and missed something in there. Because, yeah, I I don't have a clue what that would be even referring to, some sort of hump to get it in the middle of the dado incident. I
1: I know there are other like uh, someone had emailed me a link when we were talking about dados and flat bottoms and there is a, a dado insert that goes into some of these like Euro style machines like the, the um, Felders and, and the Minimax and those, those companies and they're super heavy duty, dead flat, beautiful dados and it's very different than what we usually use on our standard table saws. So I don't know if that's what he's talking about but as he describes it here, um, a dado insert with a hump I don't, I don't really know what that is, Bob. And, uh, yes, we will have questions in here that the answer might just be I don't know. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> Forgive me. I realize it's been a long time since I've used a dado cutter, but what's wrong with a regular dado? Why is he not getting it? Other than, you know, boards have slight curvature to them anyway, so maybe it's not cutting as deep in the middle. But why is a regular old dado not getting you a dead flat dado? Yeah, you should be
1: getting a dead flat Dado, I, I, but there's also the a lot of people get stressed out about those little grooves that are left. So let's say you're, you're doing something that requires more than one pass and those little outer wings on the edges that slice the grain will create mm-hmm. grooves and some people get uptight about that. If, if you've got an exposed- Oh, you
0: mean because the alternating
1: grind? Yes, yes. So, oh, okay. so if you've got like an exposed dado at, that's at the front of a case or something and, and you're going to see it in the final piece, those little grooves at the corners can kind of become an eyesore. So maybe he's looking to get a dead flat dado for, for that reason. Uh, but that's a great place to use a router plane.
3: Yep, there you go. That was no. exactly what Wait. I was thinking. Also,
1: won't take much to clean that up. So, uh, all right, Matt, you're next.
3: Okay, well, this is kind of a longer one here, and it's how would you advise a married homeowner, late twenties, with spouse and child, and a modest income in his next purchasing decisions and the path to follow? He has is this an attached a garage or a question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Give him a call. Sounds like something <laughs> when I first started out. Uh, he, let's see here. He has an attached garage with a small homeowner type shop, work tables, two by four on plywood a normal complement of tools for home repair, uh, such as a circular saw, power drills, palm sander, basically all the things I know I started out with. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's considering purchasing a uh, 10-inch compound miter saw for some molding he's going to put up in the bedroom. And he's also been researching woodworking on the Internet and is very interested in building some modest furniture for his home and perhaps to pursue as a hobby. And that that question came in from Frank. And to be quite honest with you, Frank, uh, he's pretty much starting out exactly with everything that I, I know I did to be quite honest with you. In fact, it was a long time before I ever had my first compound miter saw. I, I think at this point, it's just like any any anybody we would recommend this to is just kind of figure out what you want to do and give it a shot, really, to be quite honest with you. Because today with the internet, there's so much more uh, options for you to do that research as to what kind of projects you want to build, where would be a good place to start. You've got some resources. I mean, you definitely turned here to us to ask about this. So maybe... He could turn this direction or even just do a quick search online and you can find just about any information to help you kind of get started. Uh, mm-hmm. Really, uh, it sounds like maybe he can even turn to you, Frank, to uh, possibly you know get a, a little kickstart in here. I, I personally think what you described is oftentimes even more than a lot of other beginning woodworkers already have. So I th- yeah. think he already has a leg up. Yeah, and I think generally what he described sounds like.
1: Every almost every story I've heard out there, it's a, a a situation where a new house was purchased and there's a bunch of stuff to make for the house. This is exactly how I got into it. And yep, the great yep, ditto here. Yeah, and the great thing that these DIY home projects kind of teach you is that you you keep going until you hit that barrier where you go. I want to do this thing, but there is literally no tool in my shop or in my garage right now that will allow me to do this. This is the next thing I need to buy. And if you yeah. kind of let, like let that carry through. Uh, If you're trying to do something, research it, see if there's a way to use your existing tools safely to do that thing. And if you can't, then there's another tool that satisfies that need, then that's how you know that's probably the next tool you should think about buying. Uh, I think a compound miter saw sounds like a great choice, um, especially if he's going to be doing a lot of stuff in the
0: house. You know, It's funny, though, how circular saws have become so downplayed, and I can't figure out why that is. But I'm just kind of thinking back and that's exactly what I had. Um, mm-hmm. I had a circular saw, power, I had a cordless drill, palm sander, and I, well, I had a handheld router at that point, but it was a, like a 1940-something router. Yeah. I was a little <laughs> afraid to use it. But, you know, I, I created that little like, what do you call it? Zero clearance circular saw fence. You mm-hmm. know, where you, you put the plywood down, you put a board on top of it, then you cut it to create the zero clearance. Yeah. And I created a huge run of built-in bookshelves with just that, just a circular saw, some sheet goods, and some just dimensional lumber from from Home Depot. And I ended up creating like three or four more cabinets, like freestanding things, just using the circular saw. And it's funny because now, granted, I've gone another direction, but now it's like a uh, circular saw, whatever. But what's ironic is that's one of the only power tools I still own, is a circular saw.
1: Well, I think it, I think it might come down to the differentiating factor of solid wood projects and plywood projects. So if, he's, if he if yeah. you if he can stay within the world of plywood, that miter saw is probably going to be a lot more useful to him and will take him further. If he starts to get into solid wood and starts to get into different types of joinery, that's where the circular saw is going to find it's going to be a little bit limiting in what he can actually do with it. Um, you brought up the router though. I actually yeah. might. I mean, depending on what he's doing, he may need the miter saw, but. Based on what he has already, a router actually for furniture building, a router may even be the
0: better choice. And cheaper. <laughs> yeah. Substantially cheaper. Yeah.
3: Well, you know, I, I always think about, like uh, again, I've told the story before with Jeff Miller out of Chicago. He always talks about when he got started, it was basically like a router. And I think he had a circular saw. And now look what he's doing. That mm-hmm. was like the basis for the longest time yeah. of the furniture projects that he was you know, starting, and that was when he was a professional, right. you know, just getting going in there. So, I think, yeah, a lot of people, I, I, you know, maybe I don't want to say we do a disservice. I'm sure we have a little bit, but people look at our shops and our projects. Oh, and I totally have. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> yeah. question. In yeah, the yeah, Jack, well, world, I've done a serious disservice with some of the toys and gadgets <laughs> I have. Yes. I mean, but, you know, at the same time, though, we're following in a long line of TV shows that kind of did that. I mean, how many people thought you had to have a 100 routers like Norm? Right. So, it's <laughs> Norm.
0: You were right. I learned it from watching you. <laughs> yeah. Sweet. Well, in, if I can add one more thing, I know we need to move on, but the the compound miter saw thing sticks, it bothers me a little bit because mm-hmm. I did the same thing. I bought a compound miter saw for molding and I never used it after I did that molding. Mm-hmm. And it was a little frustrating because they're expensive. The, the big, because now it's hard to find one that's not sliding and all this other stuff. So I would suggest if he's going to do that for molding to go – this is going to sound awful, but go as cheap as he can Um, because it seems like to me if he wanted to move on to furniture, he would get more mileage out of a router Mm -hmm. and like a jigsaw so he could do some curves. And you think about the cost of one of those like um, fixed base and plunge kits like Porter Cable makes Mm -hmm. and then a jigsaw, you're probably talking maybe $200 for all of it. Now, granted, router bits and all that stuff cost a lot. Can you buy a compound miter saw – for less than $200 now?
3: No, not a know. decent one, really, as far as, I right. mean, I bought one, like, last summer, and, yeah, it was about, $200 was the entry level that mm-hmm. I felt and, comfortable walking into. I, mean,
0: I just I just never used mine, um, so I just wonder, I don't know, I'm, I'm decidedly biased when it comes to the, the power tool side of things, <laughs> but I just wonder if that is necessarily the best purchase for him to make next. Hmm. Good hmm. question. kind of just depends on what he wants to do. exactly okay shannon you're up next. anyway moving on uh this question's for russ and he wants to know what type of a type or brand of blade he should purchase to get the longest life in a production situation is it normal to go through a sharpening every couple of weeks or is there a better solution well um i believe the reason this question was handed to me is because i work in and around a millwork all day Mm -hmm. you do we do. I do. In fact, had I had no idea. I can still hear it. Wow. In, in my in my head right now, actually. I
3: thought you worked in an old timey shop with turkey legs.
0: <laughs> mm, <laughs> Ooh, turkey that would legs. be awesome. What a great employee benefit—free turkey legs. Uh, anyway, uh, our our millwork. I mean, Russ. Honestly, it depends upon how much what your production looks like, but um, our millwork starts running at about six o'clock in the morning and runs until four thirty at night, um, and then. Sometimes there's a second shift that kicks in at 6 p.m. if we're really under the gun. Um, so it's running 9, 10 hours a day, running constantly. So thousands and thousands of linear feet of molding and surfacing of Ipe and things like that, ridiculously hard stuff. Um, we use different blades for different situations. For the really hard tropical woods, we're using nothing but carbide. Um, but those are in simple profiles that like grooves and, and just... Uh, um, whatchamacallit, planers, like surfacing. Mm. When it comes to molding, obviously it's really difficult to sharpen carbide. We're using high-speed steel, just like you would find in a lathe tool. Um, we messed around with various A1 and, and and A2 and D2 and O1 and all that fun stuff, and it just kept coming back to high-speed steel. It does have to be sharpened a fair amount. There generally is a guy at the grinder... Um, <laughs> all day long, sharpening blades um, because of the fact that we are producing a lot of molding. Uh, but it's really the only way to get a decent product is to make sure that you're constantly sharpening it. So it's just kind of fact of life, mm-hmm. I hate to say it. Um, if you go with a, with a steel that's going to require less sharpening, it's going to be a lot more brittle. And in a production situation, it's not like we're at our home shops where you remove, you know, an eighth of an inch and then you advance the router bit and do another eighth of an inch. No, you're making the molding in one pass because you've got 700 more boards to feed through that molder and there's just no time to make it in multiple passes. So you need a good, strong knife that will make that but won't chip in the process. Cool. long to answer, so hopefully that covers it.
1: All right, sounds good. We have another question from Andreas, and he asks, the last time I bought blades for the miter and table saw, I stepped up to Freud blades, which were about 40 bucks at the home center. I've noticed the miter saw struggling and burning more as of late and I was wondering, at this price range, if resharpening is an option or is it time to buy a new one? If so, is it worth stepping up to a better quality blade that can have a longer life? Um, that's a great question because I think a lot of people, you may start out with the 15, $20 range blades and then step up and, and you know for a lot of people, stepping up to the next highest level is probably as high as they want to go, 40, 50 bucks for a blade. Uh, right. But what we consider generally consider premium blades is they're going to really start about at I don't know ninety bucks a hundred bucks uh, when you go up to like Forest and the the Freud Fusion blade and things like that. So at forty dollars, I would I would guess that you could probably get a few sharpenings out of that, and it probably would be worth it because sharpening generally, at least from my experience, costs somewhere between fifty and twenty bucks a blade. So if you think about that, just do the math. Uh, for a forty dollar blade, it probably is worth it to only have to spend 15 or 20 bucks, get it to work like new and get some more life out of it. Uh, If you have a $100 blade, yes, of course, that's a no-brainer, you definitely want to sharpen um, because you're talking about a much more expensive uh, piece of equipment there. Uh, If you're looking at maybe a $25 blade or something, then you start to get close to the range that it seems like it would be better to just replace it. So uh, what I did was I went on Freud's website. They actually have a list, I'll put the link in the show notes, of their authorized sharpening centers where you could take their blades to get sharpened. And what might be good about that is if you find a a local place, number one, you'll probably get a better price because you don't have to ship it. And they'll also let you know by looking at it whether this tool can take another sharpening. How many more sharpenings can it take? So if you can get a number of sharpenings out of that $40 blade, you're really getting your money's worth. Um, But ultimately, I would say use that forty dollar blade until you just can't use it anymore, and then I always do recommend stepping up if you if you can uh, manage to get the budget going, a ninety hundred dollar blade, you know something like a, a Forest Woodworker two, uh, the Tenru blades, the Freud Fusion. When you step up to that level, it's a pretty big difference <laughs> in the saw. Yes. I mean, it's yeah. it's a great thing to step up to that, and then uh, I don't I don't know how long I've had my saw blades. I mean, it's been a long time, and I don't anticipate getting. Uh, getting rid of them. They've been sharpened a number of times. They still work great. You really do get the best bang for your buck by getting that more expensive saw and then just having it
0: resharpened over and over. Yeah. You know, one thing he should do before he gets it sharpened, clean it. Yes. That's like sharpening it. If the burning he's getting may be a buildup of pitch mm-hmm. around the the carbide braised points. Yeah. And that's what's just causing it to bind, getting that burn. I remember, actually, I was watching a Wood Whisper episode. uh uh-huh. And it was that... that kit from rockler the mm-hmm. big circular tub right and you just dump it in and then you it was the simplest thing in the world to clean it this nice citrusy smell and it was like i had a brand new blade yeah. and there was no sharpening whatsoever that was done i just had to clean the crap off of it
1: i will it uh to that point new. yeah to that point shannon i will clean a blade maybe 10 times before i send it out for sharpening yeah. maybe more than that depending Um, so yeah, clean them early and often and, and you'll find that they'll go to,
0: go to Rockler and look at their blade sharpening kit. It's this like circular Tupperware and a citrus smelling cleaner. And it comes with a little box you can put router Mm. bits in. I have no idea how much it costs. I bought mine years ago, but it's awesome. And you can reuse that cleaner stuff. It's a very nice thing to have on hand. You can clean your miter saw blade, your table saw blade and it really just pulls the pitch off without
3: a problem. Uh, and, and it smells like a fruit salad. Mm. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yummy yummy.
0: They have a
1: router bit and saw blade cleaning kit for 27.99 and then they have a pitch and resin remover in a bottle for 10.99. And we'll make sure we put the links in the in the show notes for that.
3: Cool. Sweet. Hey, so the next question comes in from David and I am going to tell you right now, I don't have an answer for this, but I think I know somebody who does. So here's the question. David's is asking, I'm currently designing a french nightstand with cabriole legs. Uh-huh. Bet you guys didn't think I could actually say that word. <laughs> uh, cabriole legs in a single drawer for my dorm next year. I would like to keep some sensitive things in that drawer. David, what are you planning on putting in there? <laughs> so he said he wants to add a lock. Baseball because, cards. <laughs> because <laughs> it's me and I can't do anything the simple key lock way, I'd like to have some sort of puzzle box thing to keep unwanted hands out. Do y'all have any ideas? Um, I I really don't. We it, we did a review of the Puzzle Box Magic uh, box kit. or the, There was a DVD where he was making these really neat puzzle boxes, but those are a little easy to crack, so I don't think you want to go with something like that. <laughs> and by crack, I don't mean crack the wood. I mean, like, you can figure out the code pretty darn easily. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really have any suggestions with this. A, a great resource I saw was at Woodworking America America a couple of years ago with uh, uh, um, Chuck Bender, and he was doing a whole hidden drawer kind of thing. So that might be where you want to actually start looking. There's all sorts of neat little gadgets that you can do, little simple hidden switches and by switches, I mean something as simple as a dowel and a spring set off to the side that you know only you know about or a little hidden spot, like a little uh, hidden false bottom, even potentially could be something as simple as that when somebody's really rifling through your things rather quickly as I've done in the past in certain people's uh, uh, apartments, uh, they shall remain nameless. Um, I tend not to like go as far as to knock out bottoms. So (laughs) do you have any suggestions? Uh, Shannon, maybe do you have anything from your earlier years at the museum? You know, I actually like the idea of a false bottom to the drawer. Because if you think about it, if a drawer is locked, if
0: someone actually really wants to get something out of there, they go, ooh, it's locked. There must be something valuable in here. Whereas if the drawer isn't locked... You know who's going to think to pull the drawer out and check to see if there's a false bottom? Usually, exactly. it's only a woodworker. <laughs> yeah, because they're actually looking to see how it's like 18th built. Century furniture <laughs> is the one that would do that. So, you know that that's kind of a neat idea. Um, rather than uh, prohibiting access to the drawer, sneak in some other features to the drawer that you can't find. It depends on really what he wants to keep. You yeah. know, if he needs something with a lot of space, then. You're better off going with the actual locking the drawer.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The only other thing I could think of is making the drawer uh, appear to be uh, shorter than it actually is and maybe having like a false back on on, on the backside. They're almost like another little mini drawer. But again, somebody could easily pull it all the way out and be like, oh, aha, that's where you hit it.
0: (laughs) You should just do a a drawer, drawer marquetry on the front, (laughs) solid (laughs) panel and make it look like there's a drawer. That's a good one. And then put the drawer actually on the back of the the nightstand.
3: There you go. Nice. Yeah, but I'm pretty sure if you do a quick search, you're going to find a whole bunch of stuff. Just look for something as simple as hidden drawers or hidden components, and you'll find all sorts of neat little things in there. Uh, But as for coming up with something really simple, no, not so much. (laughs) Cool. Very (laughs) nice.
0: All right. uh, Let's see. Rich wants to know, uh, I have some hundred-year-old rough cherry that was the interior siding of a family home. It's now starting to cup and warp. These are one by 10 by 10 foot boards. Should I plane them first or should I cut to length for project first? Which is a bed headboard. Or should I rip them and rejoin them? Which order is best or is it a crapshoot? Well, <clears throat> I'm always a fan of, at least if you can get a good view of the grain and you kind of know how you're going to use the boards in the project. I'm a fan of, of cutting them down close to their final size, yeah. then planing them. Um, cause if you think about it, if you have a fair amount of cup and then you rip a board in half, now there's much less cup in each, each of those halves. So that when you go to plane them, you remove less wood. So it's just more, econ- a more economical way of doing it. So, um, I-, I would think starting with the rough boards, again, you need to have an idea. If you can't see the grain in the rough board and you don't know how you're going to use them, then you might just want to skip plane them real quick. So you can get a look at the grain, then lay out your parts where they're going to go and then rip and cross-cut them close to length, then do the whole jointing and planing thing. Um, cherry, though, cherry's pretty predictable. I've gotten pretty good at viewing the grain and the rough. Um, I would cut them to size and then worry about planing them. Sounds good to me. Yeah, okay.
1: definitely. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The next one is from Jim. He says, I did a project a year ago with some cedar 6 by 6 beams in my living room. I sealed all the ends with several coats of tongue oil. How long do you think I should wait before they are done moving and dried out before touching them up? I almost feel like we don't have all the information here. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I responded to Jim's email um, via email. There was actually a little bit more to this. He had six by six kiln dried beams. Okay. And when he, he cut one for, or he remembers when they were installing them and they cut them, it still was really damp in the middle. So he was a little concerned there cause it was kiln dried. So I, I responded to them um, any timber that is kiln dried is only kiln dried two inches deep. Mm-hmm. So there is going to be a two inch square in the inside that's still moist and it could be 20 to 25%. That's for usual. A good good mill will be somewhere in the 12 to 18% moisture content. Um, the only way to dry a timber all the way through without damaging it is through vacuum kilns, radio frequency vacuum kilns, which are freaking cool, mm-hmm. but they're, there's like three. <laughs> and they're really expensive to use right so um he if i remember correctly there was a gap um it was like the drywall went right up to the beams and then of course the beams shrank as more and more of it dried out and um he was wondering should i go ahead and patch that hole or is it then going to expand again um i mean i think the biggest thing is that they're never going to stop moving they're always going to move no matter what you do but
1: yeah, we in Arizona, a lot of houses have those uh, Vega poles and they've got beams in the interior structure. And a lot of times you are butting up drywall right against that particular, you know, pole. The thing is, like you said, because they have moisture uh, deep inside over time, they will most likely, in terms of the construction, they probably will, even though they're going to move a little bit in the future, uh, the net. The net loss is going to be the thing you're going to have to deal with, even if it expands a little bit more in the future. There's probably initially going to be a total loss of space. So right. what they do a lot here is they just caulk up between the drywall and the the wood, so there's actually a flexible, um, you know, separator there that allows for some of that movement and, and keeps it solid. So there's not a gap. So I, I don't know how long he should wait, but at some point, probably fairly soon, you know, once he notices that things have moved a little bit he may want to go back and do some treatment there where the wood meets the drywall and then use some sort of flexible caulk to to make that connection. Yeah, I guess it depends on how
0: much of a gap he has. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's true. I mean, I'm not talking anything more than a quarter inch here from the things that I've seen, but it's going to depend on his situation. Uh, Ah, cock. Woodworkers' best friends. I hate that stuff. (laughs) All right, what's up next, Matt?
3: Okay, let's see. This one comes in from Tony, and Tony's asking: I was dreaming of projects, and one of them was making handle scales for a fixed blade knife. (gasps) I picked up two pieces of bakoda, both of which are drop dead gorgeous. What do I need to make sure they don't swell or shrink that much? Also, any suggestions for a finish that can stand up to this punishing use? I have some spar varnish that I use for making walking sticks, so I'm very comfortable with that, but I'm not sure it would work. Okay, so first of all, let's uh, address the whole finishing thing. If you're comfortable with the spar varnish, uh, again, we already kind of addressed this earlier with the dining room table. Uh, That should work perfectly fine as far as I'm concerned. Once it cures, you don't have to worry about it being any type of of issue with uh, coming into contact with anybody. Mm. That should work out perfectly fine. And again, if you're comfortable with it, that just means that you're more familiar with how to use it. So you're probably going to get far better results. Now, as for the actual wood itself, You guys are going to have to probably correct me on this if I'm wrong, but usually once you work at a certain scale, and I imagine unless this is, like, a giant knife, like a huge, like, two-handed sword or something, (laughs) I have a feeling that the size of the wood you're going to be working for this, they're going to be small enough and thin enough that, to me, really the whole swelling and shrinking thing is so minimal that it's something I probably would never even think about. Mm -hmm. So I would just get them fit to the size that you need, Get it in place and maybe just in, enjoy, the, enjoy them for what they look like and use that finish that you're familiar with. Because, again, as far as I know, once you get down to a certain size, it's still going to move, but it's going to be so minimal that you're probably the only person that's going to notice it. <laughs> right. Right. Um, exactly. I
1: might also recommend that you look at True Oil, which is actually a gun stock finish, and I, I don't know much about guns or stocks. But that is something that I've heard a lot of people who are doing gun stocks and wooden parts on guns, they like to use that stuff. So check it out. It's called True Oil with no E. T-R U-O-I-L.
2: Ooh, tricky. True Oil. Ooh. Right. So true.
0: <laughs> uh, let's see. We've got another one here from Lawrence. <clears throat> he says, how do you come up with a price for a project? Oh. Points to Lawrence for a simple and straightforward question. Um, <laughs> I, for me, it comes down to what did it cost for me to make it? And how much includes... do you want to pay, Heather? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <nice>. <laughs> um, make nothing. the check out to Shannon, your husband. Uh, you just have to figure out how much it cost you to make it and then figure out what your what your profit margin need to be. I know that sounds super simplistic, but you need to come up with what you feel your shop rate is and then multiply that by the hours you put into it and make sure you're covering your your materials. I happen to know there is an outstanding article on thewoodwhisperer.com. It's it's because pricing. I put the. Did I put I put the link in there? Wow, look at that! Yes, you huh. did. Yeah, <laughs> How did that it's happen? Pricing Whoa. your work.
1: No wonder and somebody from
0: wanted to do, the used to do this professionally. So yeah. I would I would check that out. But I remember reading that article when it came out, and it was pretty much the same model that I've heard most people espouse. So it's really a simplistic, common sense
1: approach. There are like if you're really going to get down to this, and you think about businesses that do like cabinets and things. And they get their pricing down to just based on linear linear feet and cost of materials and they've got it nailed down uh, and their overhead is built in. There's a lot more you can do to complicate this process but as an individual you're just trying to figure out what is a fair way to, to price a project or at least to give you a frame of reference for it. The solution is there. It's very simple. Just dealing with your time, how you value your time and the materials used to build the project. So what he said. What I think. Okay, next one. I've heard of this from Miles. I've heard that brown paper bags work well to gently abrade a shiny finish. Any thoughts? Uh the only thought I have is that I've heard the same thing. Yes, and yes, I've, it does. Yes, I have some. And Been I've never uh, done that. Worked great. Okay, I've never done it myself, but it, you know, it seems to work out quite well for people as uh, almost acting like a very high grit abrasive. So it just kind of knocks down the top, and and it, I, people even use it just to kind of knock any of those little tiny dust nibs that remain in the final finish um, that I usually use
0: like a 2,000
1: grit pad for.
0: So yeah, it's a low
1: tech way to do it. Very inexpensive. And if it uh, produces good results, go for it.
0: Yeah, Miles, there's a there's a project on my site. I think I just called the Contemporary Chest of Drawers. If We look under the project nav bar, you'll see it. The final part there, I actually use a brown paper bag to buff out uh, the final wax coating and it did a really great job. Nice. So if you want to see it in action, check it out.
3: Yep, so Mark, the next time you pick up groceries, they ask plastic or paper, go with the paper. Paper, I need paper. There you go. All right, hey, the next question is from Michael. Looks like we have a couple of questions in here. He says, my dust collector is a roll-around 2-horsepower machine with dual 4-inch ports. When connected to the machine uh, with a 4-inch port, it performs reasonably well, sucks dust, and swirls things around in the bottom bag as I expect it should. When I connect it to the miter saw, however, leaving the second 4-inch port sealed, like I normally would, because remember there's two ports here, uh, for the other machine, the swirling action stops. To avoid burning out the motor or ruining things, I usually leave the cap sealing the second port slightly ajar to let in a bit of extra air and keep the sawdust spinning going. So my questions are as follow: One, do I risk ruining my dust collector if the swirling cyclone isn't spinning? Uh, one question I, I, I seen here, he didn't name what exactly which machine he has so yeah. i don't know if i can really say much about that but i don't really think you do i mean if if it sounds like the motor is getting really worn down if you're hearing that sound in the motor then um i would stick to what you're doing with kind of removing the one like maybe slightly ajar because i've actually noticed with my machine that if i do kind of have like a little extra like one of the the blast gates open because i have multiple blast gates if I have it just slightly open a little bit, I do actually notice that I'm getting a little bit more performance out of it. It's really weird. It seems like it shouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. So I, for, me, for me, that does help a little bit. The second question, how do you guys connect a smaller machine to your main dust collection? I know a few of you have shop facts as well, which I don't. Um, What I try to do is I try to keep as much of the largest hose that I have. So in your case, the four inch hose, I want to get that as close to the machine before I start to do any type of um, bringing it down to a smaller one. So a great example would be my miter saw uses a two and a half inch uh, dust port off the back end. I will try to keep that last two and a half inches as short in length as possible before I actually have it ducked down to the four inch one. And that seems to really help out quite a bit.
1: Hmm. It's a little tricky because I don't like to do that in general. I know people do reduce down and they they can get decent results. But from my experience, anytime you take that uh, sort of high volume, low velocity air from a dust collector and try and reduce it down to the port on a smaller tool it's always going to suffer
2: and, and what it does
1: there's a big difference between the what you get from the dust collector and then the shop vac is the opposite situation It's high velocity and low volume and it's it's meant to work at that very very low restricted uh, port size you know so I try not to do that if you can get a shop vac, I do recommend that for the smaller stuff, but I know people do get get away with it using the the systems that you know that Matt described and trying to keep the Keep the, the, the size as big as you can for as long as you can.
3: Well, you know, and the thing is, even if you do like what I, I described there, the suction is it's going to suffer. There is no doubt about it's it whatsoever. I have, you know, it's flying all over the place compared to if I could keep it at the four inch. So yeah. it's really kind of a give and take on that one.
1: Right. There you go.
0: Shannon. Duct tape. Nice. <laughs> we all have duct tape. Uh, yeah. Uh, let's see. Bart. Bart wants to know, hi guys, just wondering what, if any conferences you plan on going to this year, Woodworking in America, Find Woodworking Live, Weekend with Wood, Bart. Uh, Speaking for myself, it's, we talked about this last year, I think it was, it's getting harder and harder uh, when there were two to to consider, now the three major magazines are doing them, so it's even harder. I know there's just no way I'll be able to get to more than one Mm. each year, just, from spousal goodwill and financial perspective, there's just no way. So for me, I'm going with a sure thing. I'm going to woodworking in America. Sure thing. That's what yeah. That
1: should be like a tagline for their
0: event. <laughs> woodworking in America. Just, I just know there's going to be sure a lot thing. more of the people I want to see there. And frankly, the lineup, what I've seen of it looks really good. So, you know, no offense to the other guys. I just... Going with what I know. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, I will actually be attending Weekend with Wood, and then I am hoping and planning at this point, I've got it marked on the calendar, to be at Woodworking in America also. Mm. So this year, I'm getting adventuresome and going to two. Sweet. I'm thinking
1: about doing the same thing, Matt, only Woodworking in America is my must-attend and Fine Woodworking Live is very high on my list. I really, really want to go. Weekend with Wood, I want it to make it, but because of my schedule lately, everything is pushed back, and there's just no way I could free up the time to be available for that.
3: Why? Um, you don't want to be in crazy downtown Des
1: Moines? <laughs> it sounds like a, <laughs> a wild party, but uh, I really didn't want to go because I like the the guys at Wood Magazine. I'd like to um, hang out with them for a little bit, but unfortunately, just timing isn't going to work. So I will be at WIA and a firm, solid, one hundred percent unsure, maybe for Fine working Live.
0: <laughs> I want to say Fine working Live because it's really it's relatively close to me, but mm. it's it fell on like the worst weekend ever for me. Yeah. I think I've got like three other things planned, one of which is not anywhere near Connecticut. So mm. right, yeah, it's just a shame. Okay, moving
1: on. We've got one from Chris here. He says, "When is it appropriate to use sanding sealer, or is it just a product that manufacturers put out to make more money?" I typically, <laughs> nah, they never do that. <laughs> uh, I typically seal with a coat of shellac before building my finish. Is this sufficient, or do I need to do more? Well, here's the thing, your Today's work- Today's
0: show is brought to you by General Finishes. <laughs> yes, buy more.
1: Um, your work probably can answer that question for you. Is there anything in the projects you've finished that tells you you need to do something more? Do you find that shellac is perfectly adequate? And I would guess that you probably find that it is adequate. Generally speaking, for the average woodworker who knows how to work with shellac, there is no need for a product called sanding sealer because shellac, de-wax shellac, will do pretty much anything the sanding sealer can. Uh, The sanding sealer has some additives in it that help it powder up as you sand it, so it makes it a little easier to sand, but it isn't like shellac is difficult to sand. Um, You know, so honestly, I have never had a need to buy a product called a sanding sealer as long as I had shellac in the shop and if I want to do something in terms of blotch control, You can use shellac for that, but I also like to use Charles Neal's blotch control formula as a water-based solution, and I feel that actually works better. In most situations, if you're looking to really do a heavy color shift, uh, Charles Neal's stuff is absolutely superb. So yeah, for me personally, sanding sealer, no, it's not a a BS product. It does work. It does pretty much what it says it does, but we have other ways to do it that you don't necessarily need that particular product in your shop.
3: I always wanted the sanding sealer to be something like you seal it, you don't have to sand, put your finish on. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> that would be fantastic. I'd put it on rough wood all the time. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> all right. Hey, we have another question here from John, and John's asking, I'm building a work- workbench with, which includes a leg vise. I have some 12-quarter kiln-drawn flat sawn ash I plan on using for the chop. Do you have any recommendations on how I should orient the grain in relation to the bench? While the remainder of the lumber I've used has been incredibly stable, I'm worried about possible cupping. As my workbench nears completion, I'm trying to figure out how to drill three-quarter-inch holes in my bench top. My plunge router seems like a possible solution, but I'm kind of new to routers. I was thinking I could start the hole with the router and then finish it with an auger bit in my drill. Can I safely plunge, cut my three-quarter-inch holes? Any other recommendations, suggestions on how to approach this? So let's uh, go with the the leg vice first. One thing I had thought about is if you're concerned about this possibly cupping on you, I I mentioned the John... Personally, myself, if I'm going to orient the grain, I want to take advantage of that cupping. Mm-hmm. So I would actually want to orient it so that if it was going to cup, it would cup towards the leg because then when I crank the the leg vice closed, it's actually going to kind of flatten out for me. It will actually act a little bit like calls is what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. So that might actually kind of be a benefit there. What do you guys think?
1: I I would totally agree. I mean, if if he thinks it might cup, stack the cards in your favor, make sure it's, you know, bringing two points toward the bench instead of one point toward the bench mm-hmm. if you flip the cup the other way. Um ultimately with what he described, I don't see any reason why he should be overly concerned
0: that it's going to cup
1: on him.
3: That's what I was kind this of thinking is, also. This
1: is
0: exactly what I did with the exact same species and same thickness in my rubo And so far, it hasn't cupped at all. But if it does, it will cup towards the bench. There you go.
3: Perfect. All right. Now, regarding the drilling the three-quarter inch holes in the bench top with a, a plunge router, I actually did that with uh, the, my bench that I have right now, the, the kind of crappier one. And if I remember right, there's actually a video. We'll have to look for this. I think Glenn Huey uh, demonstrated doing this. Uh, it's a really easy way to do it. But if you're still uncomfortable with plunging all the way through, it's not actually a bad way to get them started and then come back in with your auger bit and uh, finish it up that way. But I think you... Personally, myself, I I think you can safely plunge the three-quarter inch holes without any problems. In fact, you could probably even set up a little jig where you could have it referenced off the face, off the apron, and kind of use that as the base for uh, using your, your plunge router and drop it right down and just go along every so often. And actually using a jig like that, you could potentially... Make sure that they're actually all lined up. Where if I did it freehand, uh, it would look like a drunken uh, <laughs> router holes, basically.
1: <laughs> so what what would be the reason to not just use the boring bit from the start? It sounds like he's. Or I don't know. A bit.
3: I I I could do that. I mean, even if it went see, off on a little about bit of an angle, it there square, maybe that's what I'm thinking. A yeah. handheld drill, worried about keeping it square.
1: Possibly, I guess, huh?
3: Because um, yeah. that's what I did. <laughs> Or he just doesn't want to go full on Shannon. (laughs) That's true. true. If you remember, if you watch my Rubo video, I just
0: drilled the dog block first at the drill press. And then I went, you know, and of course that only took me two inches deep. And then I used that as a guide hole for my brace and bit to drill through the rest of the way. There you go. Smart. So, yeah, that was in my hybrid days. Um, You know,
1: also the, just to give him a link, something to chew on here. I use these power bore drill bits and I had a hard time finding a good three quarter inch bit that would plow through this uh, maple on my bench top. And Rockler has a set of uh, a nine piece power bore drill bit set. It's 39 bucks and you get quite a few bits with it. But the three quarter inch bit just chewed through it like like it was nothing, like it was butter.
3: Ooh, I like butter. So I don't know if
1: that's going to be useful to him, but I'll put the link in there in case he uh, needs some bits to use.
3: Sweet. And I just found the video for Glenn Huey. So we'll go ahead and drop this in there also.
0: Cool beans. Right on. Let's see. We've got a question from Mark. He said, I just went to my first woodworking show in Fort Worth, went for two days, getting to absorb as much knowledge as I could and buy some cool new accessories for the shop. Back in 2007. Way back, way back. Mark was very disappointed in the woodworking show saying it was not worth the money. Just curious how you think their shows compare now. Are there any specific shows that are worth the time and effort to go to? First of all, are there any other shows I mean, there's the woodworking show. Woodworks is gone. Um, there's other like than the, like you know the woodworking America, like the magazine shows. And the, I don't the, think there is another traveling woodworking show. Well, the tool company sponsored stuff, like Lee Nielsen's hand tool event. Oh but, yeah, that's but, true. But other but, than that, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the only one. Well, I've been to uh, I think the last three years I've been to the woodworking show when it comes to Baltimore. And um, three years ago, I would say absolutely not. It was it was just useless Mm. um it was getting better last year and it was much better this year it is still and and this is coming from the hand tool guy for me it's still screaming routers and table saws and lots and lots and lots of noise but there there's a fair amount of they've got a good group of like demonstrators together and there's some pretty good seminars going on now um still a little bit difficult to hear i mean you can only crank up the amplification so loud before the guy across the, the aisle is competing with the guy you're trying to listen to. Yeah. So it, it is a little tough there, but there's, there's a lot to see. And <clears throat> especially if you're kind of new to the craft, I mean, it's like a kid in a, in a candy store, which it sounds like Mark just went through when he bought a bunch of stuff. So I think it's gotten a lot better. Definitely in talking to guys who present on it, like Paul Sellers and, and um, Andy Chidwick, the attendance is up from this time last year. So, it's always a good thing, I suppose.
1: Yeah, they, I'm looking at the lineup here. Just, I guess, they're touring instructors right now. Roland Johnson, Jim Heavey, Andy Chidwick, and Bradley McAllister. I'm not familiar with him, but I, I guess he's a, a good turner. Um, so, yeah, th- it's it looks like it has changed quite a bit since since I went in the past, and I have not been back. Um, part of the reason is, I don't even know, are they coming to Phoenix at all.
3: Yeah, yeah, that's another one. Is a lot of them aren't even. I mean, there's not even one that's coming to the Detroit area. I, I don't, think I had to go out of town to go find it. I
0: see no Phoenix. So this year they're going to Phoenix. That was my understanding. I don't
1: see it on their list.
3: When, they're when, just when, hiding it from Mark. They're they're yes, <laughs> it could be. They when got my Andy IP
0: address. Sidwick stopped by in Baltimore. He stopped by the lumberyard. I asked him, you know, if he was going to get a chance to see because I know he had just seen Matt mm-hmm. and asked him if he was going to see you, and he said when he goes to Phoenix he was going to look you up. Unless so. they
1: haven't updated it, I don't know. I don't yeah. see Phoenix on their list who
0: knows. If nothing else though, like 3 years ago like Lee Valley wasn't there. Yeah, that's um, huge. You know, Delta's always there. They have the marketing budget of of a deity. So, I mean, it's not a big surprise to see guys like that, but to see like the slightly minor power tool guys like Laguna was there this year. And I mean, they're a big company, but they weren't there 3 years ago. Lee Valley was there this year and they weren't 3 years ago. So, that's always an indication look at the exhibitors list and Mm -hmm. you can pretty much tell that things have gotten a little bit better. But in any instance, it's always a good opportunity to go and just kind of lay hands on the tools. If you're looking about buying something, if you're looking to get into turning or something like that, there's plenty of opportunities to go and turn a pin or turn something like that. It's, it's good fun.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, you you can turn
3: the beat around there too. Turn the beat. Yes,
1: (laughs) you can. You know, and I was just going to mention, I, um, I'm not really a religious man, but if I ever talk to God, I will ask him, uh, "What is your marketing budget?" What's his marketing budget? That would be good to know. <laughs> Shannon, Shannon seems to think it's it's quite large.
3: It, it's actually it's very it's very pauperish. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, uh, we got another question here from Josh, and he says I'm working on a bookshelf that uses plywood and solid lumber. They're going to look foolish next to each other unless I can get a better color match. I was hoping to keep the finish simple with some BLO boiled linseed oil and a top coat of poly or varnish. I tried out some BLO on the plywood and it took the color it took on a nice color and matched the untreated lumber pretty closely. However, once I put the oil on the lumber, I'm back to square one. Next, I tried a couple of lighter stains and I have that I have and that's no go. The color match wasn't great, but more importantly, I just don't like the way stain unevenly colors the different parts of the grain of oak. Going back to BLO, I figured that two coats of uh, two coats on a plywood would match one coat on the lumber, but the second coat of the oil <laughs> sure doesn't color the plywood twice as much. Are there any tricks or advice to applying two coats of BLO? Uh, should I really flood the wood for just one coat? Let it sit for a bit before wiping off the excess to get more color. Here's the thing, you're fighting a losing battle, Josh. You're never going to get really any more color after one or two coats of BLO. You know, oil is only going to do so much in terms of uh, coloring the wood. So what I would what I would recommend whenever I try to do a color match especially between similar or the same species that just happen to be, you know, plywood versus solid wood, I actually do like to hit it with a dye. It's not a heavy stain. It's kind of like a dye that is the ideal color for for both of those woods. So if you are looking to just kind of keep it fairly natural, I would go for like a a lighter brown, medium brown dye put a little bit of finish in there. So if I'm using shellac, maybe it would be a good thing if you have an alcohol soluble dye. And I like to just kind of put that over and give it a nice coat. Now I'm spraying typically when I'm doing this so I can control the depth of color. And by doing that, you sort of bring the two pieces of wood into the same color family. You're just getting them closer. They may not even be a dead match, but it's going to be better than it was left natural. And then from that point, you could proceed with your top coat. You could probably skip the boiled linseed oil. Just go right to your your varnish at that point. Um, so it's it's kind of like using a toner, if you will, where there's just a little bit of color in there. Uh, but I do like to use a dye specifically to raise the color family up into the same general uh, vicinity of one another. And that usually works for me.
0: I guess raise I'm showing color my color family. I like that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, there, there's also, I mean, if you want to get tricky about it, if it's just trim... Uh, you might be able to, I don't know, maybe put a little bit of sealant like some uh, regular de-wax shellac or something on the trim uh, so that it's pre-sealed and then attach it and then treat everything the same way. You might find that the colors balance out a little bit better, but that's going to be tricky because then you're attaching you're, you're attaching it and you still have to, to flush it to the surface and it just gets messy if you have pre-finished trim that's going on to a piece of plywood. That's never a great situation.
3: Nice. So, I'm really showing you my age here because every time you said BLO, I thought you were mistakenly not referring to ELO, which was nice. a band I really enjoyed. Right <laughs> so, on, yeah. Mr. Blue Sky. Good stuff. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. I'm, hey. So I, you have yourself marked as this one, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do this one. Go for it. All right. It says this is from Mike, and he was just wondering what are your opinions. Well, you're already in trouble for this right now. Are you regarding <laughs> what are your opinions regarding what skills you need to possess to graduate from beginner to intermediate? And up to advanced and master woodworker. So, guys, are there really skills that you need? To, is there a checklist that we can compare this to? Or is it by the number of years that you've been doing it? Or is it the projects you've done? I'm sure there's a way to gauge this, but I always kind of just throw myself into the intermediate semi advanced simply because I've been doing it for a number of years. I've got some sawdust under my shoes. But as for like any kind of checklist or something like that, is there really anything like that anymore? I think in order to graduate from beginner to intermediate, you have to have listened to every episode of Wood Talk. That's true. That is, that <laughs> no, is a that's when you graduate it. from sanity to insanity.
1: <laughs> it's it's one of those things where this is a unregulated industry. You know, there there is no one out there saying that here is a curriculum you must follow once you reach this point. You've achieved this degree and you can now call yourself this. You can be whatever you want. I mean, and that's the the exact reason why. We have a a thread in the forum talking about this too. I'm trying to find the link. But I actually try to get away from calling anything in terms of a project that I produce as intermediate, beginner, advanced. And the reason is because I've seen too many beginners who have never built anything before who will come along and build a split-top Rubo workbench or they will build a green and green Adirondack chair with all those green and green details, but they're an absolute beginner. And I think it really comes down to some people just have an aptitude for this, and if the instruction is good enough, they have the list of steps they need to do, they follow those instructions, and they execute, and it's done. Now that person, on paper, is a beginner, but they just made a project that might be considered intermediate, experienced intermediate, or advanced, or something like that. So, I specifically avoid these labels because I think they're incredibly limiting. People are like, oh, I'm not advanced. There's no way. I've only been woodworking for a year. I'm not even going to attempt that project. You know, yeah, so, yep. so I totally try to avoid those labels as much as possible.
0: Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I especially like that they can do it if they have proper instruction. That was a nice little. Well, and here's
1: the thing, though. What do you guys think about it, the whole beginner, intermediate, advanced Fine, We can toss those terms around. Uh, someone who has a lot of experience can call themselves advanced. Um, what about the master woodworker terminology? Like, it, it, well, there really is nothing that determines that other than someone else calls you it. You know what right. I mean? Like, did for instance, David Marks. You know, he's someone who I would consider especially in the things that he really has an interest in, the guy's a master, you know? Uh, But does he think he's a master? Is this just a term that other people have given him? Uh, You know, so the master thing is one of those weird terms. Uh, From what I know of David, I don't even, like, I think he's at that higher level. He's sort of like, you know, karate kid who suddenly realizes because Mr. Miyagi says he's a black belt, he now goes, oh, I'm a black belt. He's not the kind of guy that searches for that label. He just does his thing and lets other people uh,
0: put labels on him. Um, but you know what I, I mean? I like, think that would apply with just about anybody, you yeah. know? I mean, Phil Lowe is a master cabinet maker, but I doubt Phil would call himself a master cabinet maker. Yeah. He's just yeah. been doing it a long time.. Right. Yeah. You know? Well, you see a lot of, I
1: think a lot of times, though, you if you're putting your name on a business card, and let's say you're building cabinets and your goal is to get more customers, you might refer to yourself as the master carpenter, master woodworker.
0: See, but that's just it, too, is it's been thrown around so much that it's practically meaningless. My, my wife watches HGTV a lot, and she's always watching those like flea market flip type shows. Yeah. And you get these people that buy junk and turn it around, and there's always a master carpenter there to help them. And you watch what this guy does, and he's basically got a brad nailer and a table saw, and he's just cobbling <laughs> stuff together in 30 minutes. In other words, he's I mean, just
1: like the lead carpenter on the job.
0: Basically, yeah, and they, they give him the term master carpenter, and yeah. it's, it's like, you know, hey, he's probably got really good skills, but, you know, it, it's just an arbitrary label. Labels are bad. They're divisive. They are. They're limited. Down with They're limiting. And,
1: and
3: The uh, way I look at it is if it's my shop, I'm the master of the shop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and here's the
0: thing
1: uh, to keep in mind, Mike, as you move forward, you're never going to stop learning. Uh, you shouldn't ever stop learning. Even the people who call themselves or other people call them masters at what they do. They're not a master of everything. They're just a master of the things that they do. So if they want to venture into something that's maybe uncharted territory for them, they're no longer a master in that and they're going to start learning again. So I think you're really best served if you consider yourself a a student forever and you're always learning and you'll never, never get to master because you really, you don't want to limit yourself and say, I mean, by the time you call yourself a master of something, you've stopped learning about it. So you may cut yourself short.
3: Yeah, so, definitely. Labels bad,
1: and uh, and if you want to be self deprecating like we are, <laughs> and you just not o- not only do you always need to improve, you just you know refer to yourself as as relatively sucky. Um, you know, you always have something to aspire to. I don't I, know, I, guys.
0: I, I, After this episode, we are master podcasters.
1: Uh, that's a possibility. I mean, we've been doing it for a while now, and we just killed twenty questions. <laughs> that's what I mean. We—that's our last question. Congratulations!
0: Yeah. Way to go!
3: Ooh. You know, and the nice thing is, earlier today, the the bin already started to fill up. So <laughs> I, I saw don't...
0: that. I'm like, it's <laughs> <That's> oh, <you're... laughs> true. It's our last question. Damn it! Not anymore. Yeah. Stop it.
3: <laughs> well, here's the thing:
1: we can't complain. That just means that people are interested, they're listening, and they're sending in their questions. And hopefully, we were able to answer them. If we didn't get to your question. We either felt that we perhaps answered it on a previous show or it was too close to another question so we just picked one and went with it. Exactly. So, of course, we do appreciate any questions that anybody sends us and we have a bunch of um, voicemails waiting and a bunch of links and stuff but we're going to have to wait till next week to get to those. Oh, um,
3: good, good, good. We have something on the ground.
1: Yeah, uh, for now, I will talk about our iTunes reviews real quick. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes, look us up in the iTunes store, click on the ratings and reviews and then you could tell Matt how much you like his beard. Mm, I like my beard sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We'll give a special thanks to Wood Wizard, Jamie, Captain Queeg, and Xanos. Xanos in particular had this to say. He said, you guessed it. M&Ms, that's M&Ms, stands for Mark, Matt, and Shannon. What a delicious podcast. I'll leave it up to them to decide who's the peanut, pretzel, and plain chocolate.
3: Mm, That's easy. I'm the peanut.
1: Uh, I
0: say Matt's definitely the nut. There's
3: no
1: question. (laughs) My mom used to call me peanut when I was a little kid, so...
3: I could see that. I kinda, I can def- what we'll call
1: you from I kind of own that, so just
0: saying.
3: All right. Well, in that case, I could be a little <laughs> salty, as everybody knows, when they listen to the adult swim, or yes. we simply forget to turn the microphone off. You do have a <laughs> salty I, I tongue. Think,
0: I think the next episode needs to be a cage match between Mark and Matt over the term peanut. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm peanut. No, I'm peanut. All
1: right. I <laughs> uh, also want to remind you, today's show is sponsored by Festool at FestoolUSA.com, who, by the way, did you guys see their festival connect event that norm showed up and was on a live stream i heard about it and i missed it and i was awesome. so angry at myself it was so cool and it's like dude why are you not doing a woodworking show anymore please <laughs> you, look you still you can walk you've got two hands <laughs> why are you doing this it just annoys me i like that guy He's just it's like a comfort thing it's like a comfort food for it woodworkers
3: is. uh yeah. he's, he's like the macaroni and cheese of my world he, he
1: totally is woodworkers macaroni and cheese All right, so uh, we also
0: (laughs) That's the best tagline ever right there. (laughs) There you
1: go. Uh, We should let them know. All right, also sponsored by uh, Bell Forest Products at bellforestproducts.com. You guys can check them out. They've got lots of great kits and exotics and all kinds of things that you can mail order and they'll send it to you. It's pretty awesome. Uh, we want to thank our recurring donors this week, Paul F. and David D. Thank you so much, guys. And if you'd like to help us out with a recurring donation, you could do that at woodtalkshow.com. Over in the left hand column, you'll find a few links. And Matt, how about you give them the contact info and we will get out of their earballs?
3: All right, folks. Well, if you want to keep filling up our little bin down here with all your questions, you have several different ways to do that. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is Wood Talk Online. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com. Leave us a comment on our Wood Talk Facebook page. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes, because we're going to have a few good links in there from today's episode, just a few. And they might be good, actually. I can't guarantee those will all be good. Uh, you're gonna find those over at woodtalkshow.com. And with that said, I think I got dinner waiting for me now that I started talking about all that mac and cheese. Me
1: too. Yeah, I was just I'm gonna, gonna mention, go listen
3: to ELO. <laughs> I'll do that while eating dinner.
1: You do that. And hey guys, guess what? <laughs> What's that? Yes.
3: Hey! I'm such a was gang that, I'm a gangster. Was that was that co host on co host violence? <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> Alright, we're gonna take off. Everybody, have a great week. We'll see you next time. Bye. See ya.
0: studios network for more information about this and other shows visit frogpants.com audio program so good it's like you're there hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter that's why i teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create pretty litter its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter
3: And is all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices.
2: Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and three hundred and sixty five day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer.